Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Kudos Head of Production, Alison Barnett, about receiving the 2023 BAFTA Television Craft Special Award. From Argonon, Group Chief Executive James Burstall about his recently published book on crisis survival, and from the C21 team about the key themes that will shape next week's MIP TV in Cannes. Kudos Head of Production Alison Barnett was this week named recipient of the Special Award as part of the 2023 BAFTA Television Craft Awards, one of the most prestigious accolades handed out by the British TV establishment. The exec, whose work spans more than four decades and includes shows like Doctor Who, All Creatures Great and Small, Spooks and SAS Rogue Heroes, will receive the gong at the ceremony on April the 23rd. She spoke to Michael Pickard about what the prize means, her pioneering role as one of the UK's first female production chiefs, some of the changes she's witnessed in the business and some of the highlights of her career. So first of all, Alison, we should say, you know, congratulations, you're the recipient of this year's BAFTA Special Award at the BAFTA Television Craft Awards, uh, which will be happening in a matter of weeks. I mean, what do you make of it? I guess it's kind of a a cross between an outstanding contribution award and a bit of a a lifetime achievement award. I mean, how do you feel about it? Well, no, I'm absolutely thrilled about it, to be honest, and very surprised. I mean, uh, it's a big year for me. I've just had a big birthday. I've nearly done 45 years in the industry. And then suddenly I was on holiday to get this letter from BAFTA was just well it's the icing on the cake it was just fantastic I'm absolutely thrilled about it yeah yeah I know it's it's incredible and congratulations I mean you know in your in your current role you're head of production at at Kudos and you've been there you know 2005 I believe so I mean just tell us a bit about you know your current day-to-day role and and what head of production sort of really means I guess you're across everything that Kudos is doing well yes that's right I am um right from um development through to getting the budget and schedule together working with the producers and the directors, working through the actual filming, then, you know, working through post-production. So it's literally from getting that script on your desk and then sitting down and watching it on a television screen in your living room. And that can take anything from one year to two and a half years, depending on the length of the show. Mm-hmm. And, and and I guess doing that role and, and overseeing so many different aspects of the business, I mean, where are the challenges today at the moment? <laughs> How is that different from maybe, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, when you started in the role? Oh, well, the industry, as you know, Michael, has changed dramatically, you know, for over the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, the creative ambition now and everything we do is huge. Budgets are always, you know, tr- are tricky, very, you know, budget constraints can be difficult. Uh, where you're going to shoot the actual show, crewing up because there's so much competition now, shortage of crews. So, yeah, I mean, challenging. You're you're on a day-to-day basis. You're moving around 80 to 100 people if you're on location for something like up to 12 weeks. That has challenges enough, yet alone what kind of comes suddenly when the phone rings and something dramatic has gone wrong or someone is ill or, I mean, like the pandemic. You know, that came from nowhere and suddenly we were all at home. But luckily, thanks to the government PRS scheme, we could keep going. But that had huge challenges, massive challenges that we just came out of left field. So it's uh, jack of all trade, master of none, whatever they say. You know what I mean? It's anything can happen and it does. And you've just got to juggle everything in the air and get on with it. <laughs> no, absolutely. 
and, and and obviously at Kudos, you know, one of the UK's you know forefront producers of, of drama in particular. I mean, how many plates would you be spinning at at one time in terms of projects in development, production, post production? What's your inbox like? <laughs> massive, massive. Um, I mean, if I just think about it now, we've got one, two. I, I think I'm juggling about eight projects in different stages at the moment. We're just about to hopefully yes, we're just about to go off to Croatia and get ready to shoot SAS two. We've got the ninth series, would you believe, of Grantchester. We're finishing off This Town, which is our new Stephen Knight show in Birmingham. We're still finishing off a show that we did last two years ago in Germany for Sky. So, yeah, absolutely. Right across, right across everything is, is um, yeah, a lot happening, a lot going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess it, with, a, with a nod to the award, I mean, and, and looking across your career, I mean, what kind of moments stand out for you or, or stand out as sort of being those tentpoles in, in the industry that you have to sort of grapple with or have provided new opportunities for you? That's a difficult question, actually, because it's over 40 years, so it's difficult. Um, I would say all of it, really, just going from drama school to going into the theatre, from theatre going into what everyone thinks about, and I agree, actually, is the golden age of the BBC. You know, I was there late 70s to mid 80s, you know, finishing off my last show at the BBC was Edge of Darkness, which was a fantastic show to kind of finish there on my career there on. Then going freelance, working my way up, because at that point there were very, I think I probably was, uh, somebody pointed out the first female line producer uh, back in like 82, 83. It was a very male-dominated world then. Just doing a huge range of shows, then I guess meeting Jane Featherstone when she was a producer. We did Glasgow Kiss together. And then, of course, she went into Kudos and then Spooks, Hustle, everything arrived. And uh, then it was Jane saying, I think we need a head of production. We're rather busy. Can you come in and help? And that was 2005. So, you know, I've just been incredibly lucky, actually. Yeah. And, and what was, you mentioned there, you know, I guess trailing a, a blaze for, for female producers, you know, becoming the first female my line producer in British TV, which which sounds you know incredible that it was probably quite recently, really. And, and what was that like for you? Can you re- recall that experience of of sort of breaking those boundaries and and that impact that you kind of led for other people? Yeah, I suppose it was breaking boundaries. I just had a my first child, so it was literally taking her to work and balancing her on one knee and back doing the computer on the other. So uh, I was very lucky though then working for Dennis Potter, who actually was a great believer in in promoting women in the industry in you know from behind camera so working with him was a great honor and he you know had a female producer Rosie Whitman and so we yeah I never thought of it at the time you see that we were kind of breaking you know new boundaries we just had to kind of get on with it I suppose and I remember when I first went to Kudos back in the day Jessica Sharkey actually at um, Hattrick decided we should have a head of production forum and I think there were eight of us eight women in a room discussing various things and how you know how we all manage doing stuff and all the rest of it that must have been about I don't know 2008 but if you think now that same head of production group is now 90 strong and I'd say out of the 90 five are men <laughs> right and, and you mentioned you know just starting the career, your career as well kind of making that jump from theatre and, and the stage to, to television I guess it's not something we think about too much now because it happens quite regularly but at that time as well was that 
quite an unusual step to take and, and quite an, a new environment for you to work in? Oh, definitely. I mean, I love the theatre. You know, I wanted to be an actress. I went to drama school. I adored the theatre and the opera. And I never thought about television. Never, never thought about working in television at all. And then at the BBC at that time, in order to get into the BBC, you had to have worked in the theatre. And having been a stage manager, the only way I could get into the BBC was actually as a floor assistant, which is why I went in and then I was doing everything from, you know, grandstand, nationwide, Top of the Pops, Doctor Who, you know, Blake Seven. I mean, it was, you just, you know, you, you did everything. And it was from there that I thought, oh, no, I still want to stick with my drama. And I managed to kind of do, um, get into the drama department, work my way up to an assistant floor manager, which was a kind of lovely, lovely role, actually. It was a kind of in between a runner and a prop boy. And it was very still very theatrical, you see. It was still very based on, on the theatre. Um, in those days, you know, if you worked on a Shakespeare, you actually had a rehearsal period of eight weeks. I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, that wouldn't happen now. So yes, it was it was it was a bold move and one that I hadn't thought of. But I'm just whatever stars were aligning, saying get into television. It was the right thing to do for me. I think at that time, definitely. And and you were seen. You mentioned that you know golden age of TV, and and it's notable that you you know some of those scripted shows you mentioned that you first kind of got your first credits on were Doctor Who and, and Blake Seven. I mean that must have been a hugely exciting time to be at the BBC working on those kinds of projects. Oh yeah, no, it definitely was absolutely. I mean you know when I say now to people, I did Doctor who and work with Tom Baker I mean you can imagine the response is massive um, I just remember them as great fun actually great great fun hard work hard work but uh very very rewarding and just just the range of stuff we did you know all creatures great and small one week Hamlet the next the Tempest working with Jonathan Miller I mean it was just I can remember one of the other things I did was um and one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's first live concerts at the BBC with the Royal Philharmonic it was tell me on a Sunday and it was just it was just the range of stuff that was uh just just open to us all you know that was so great and and yeah and, and so then now at kudos for a few years and, and you mentioned spooks and hustle i mean how has the company and, and your role there sort of managed to to keep audiences entertained for so long because you know kudos as i said is is one of the foremost producers in the country i mean can you give us an insight into the the ambition and the creative sort of focus at the company and and the kind of stories that you like to make well yeah i mean it was first led by um jane featherstone and stephen garrett and of course they're you know creative ambition was always so high and now that's kind of followed through now we've got martin haynes and karen wilson and the creative yeah absolutely it does rule us i mean it has to you know with, with the competition you've got to have those stories those scripts that you can bring to life so yeah we're very lucky in that we do you know keep going keep motivation keep getting new young writers coming in and making groundbreaking shows which is um you know which again is just is just fantastic again i feel very privileged and lucky to have worked on the early kind of kudos projects. I mean, Spooks again, like Edge of Darkness, was groundbreaking in its way and still shot on film, which was fantastic, you know, and uh, thinking outside the box and how we were going to make them. And and if you think of, I was just thinking going back, actually, the writers we had on the early Spooks, if you look them up, I mean, just a mixture of television and theatre writers. And then that just kind of transformed into into Hustle, Life on Mars, Ashes. And yeah, so it continues. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Is, is there one show that you look back on as as a favourite or one that sort of was uniquely challenging for, for you in your role? Well, I think because I was I was a line producer, you see, on Spooks before coming into, um, into Kudos as a head of production. But, you know, we did 10 series of Spooks and I think everybody loved Spooks just because the BBC gave us such freedom when it was such a success. And we just kind of got on with it. And as I said, it was it was groundbreaking stuff. We were still on film. It was earlier days in London when you could get away 
with filming, you know, easy, easier than you can now. We were a very small group of people and from, you know, directors, cast, everybody, it was just a kind of real, yeah, it was a real commitment from everybody to, you know, to continue to make that show and to do 10 series of something like that at that time was was pretty, um, pretty good. Mm-hmm. I noticed, you know, in, in among your credits, uh, sort of two shows that always stand out for me because of their unique relationship together was Echo Beach and, and Moving Wallpaper, you know, the the soap and the, and the making of the soap, which sort of, yeah. I've always sort of been fascinated by how those shows were kind of put together and complemented each other. I mean, what would you, could you tell us maybe now looking back about, you know, making two shows at once kind of about each other? I guess it's a, a forerunner of kind of the, the franchising we're seeing now of TV with different sort of ways stories can sort of turn and twist amongst each other. Yeah, no, that, well, that was Tony Jordan, of course, wasn't it, you see? And it was just a, a bonk idea and we just didn't know how, quite how we were going to do it because actually we didn't have a lot of money to make them and we'd been filming down in what Longcross Studios is called now back in the day it was the, the old MI6 building or something down in Chertsey it was just a lot of old warehouses so we kind of took over two blocks of warehouses and that's right we had, we had the Echo Beach set in one place and the and the um, and the other of uh, the newspaper offices or whatever the television offices set in the other and we just kind of kept crossing over I'd forgotten about it actually it was a yeah, that was bonkers it was such a shame we didn't get to do it again but uh yeah not many people talk about those shows Michael so yeah. well yeah I mean I guess the issue with um with Nolly I don't know if you've seen Nolly recently Russell T Davies's show about Nolly from Crossroads yes. a lot of that yeah. show is about the making of Crossroads and it's just um you know TV about making TV is always interesting for me on a logistical level more than <laughs> more than anything else I think <laughs> well do you know I what I did watch that and that did really remind me especially the rehearsals that really took me back to um bbc acting where we used to do our rehearsals absolutely it did and the grandness of our talent at that point because you know we were working with such fantastic talent and you know suddenly sitting down in the canteen eating your fish and chips opposite sir john gielgud you know you just kind of thought hang on um <laughs> what's going on so it was for me because having wanted to act and be and love the theater i mean i was in seventh heaven you know it was fantastic it was just amazing to be in that environment yeah absolutely and, and, and you mentioned you know covid earlier and i mean take can you take us back to sort of march 2020 and and what was your kind of slate looking like and you know you start reading about it in the press and and you know you're starting to think what are we going to do at what point are you thinking you know crikey what are we going to do if this kind of hits and and then it does well yes well we like everybody everyone was told to go home and we had sas on the cards we had then you run which was going to Germany so the big thing was how do we continue so you know literally we were kind of rewriting budgets and protocols were coming out of everyone you know all over the place and then getting the government PRS scheme was just a lifesaver but of course that document was something like 80 pages long and everybody had different views about it um, the head of production group that I was talking about earlier we all core of us got together and helped the British Film Commission get you know the, the main kind of protocols out for the industry <clears throat> but it was yeah for for SAS we just thought we've got to keep going the country was in shutdown okay so what should we do because we needed to get to Morocco so we were coming up with all these ridiculous plans about how the hell do we get to Morocco even at one point I think we thought about going by sea but anyway (laughs) we we persevered and we actually then had to get special permission from the king of Morocco and he allowed us to charter in a plane one plane so in fact we had to take everybody with us the whole kit and caboodle all the actors for eight weeks all the circus everybody because we had one plane 
plane in and one plane out at the end. And we arrived in Morocco. They, of course, were, were in lockdown. But it was fantastic because we were in our own little Moroccan COVID bubble. And uh, again, we just got on with it. It only really came and hit us when Morocco opened up its borders and people started traveling around again. And then people on the unit and the car, some of the cars did get sick. But we managed to, you know, managed to do it. Uh, then you run in Germany was, was even trickier, actually. Again, we had to send everyone across to Germany right at the beginning of the show. Getting people in and out of Germany was 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 really tricky at one point. We had to kind of go all through Eastern Europe and cross different borders. And it, it was difficult, actually. For, when you think about it now, you know, we were telling 80-odd people, you are going to go to Germany in the middle of a pandemic and you can't get home. And not only that, you can't get a jab because, you know, you're in a foreign country. So we asked a lot of, of you know, it was, it was tough for people, actually. You know, it was bad enough back here getting people to come to work. We're going to look after you. We have protocols. You know, we can, you know, it's going to be okay. But to send people to Morocco and Germany was a bit of a different, uh, yeah, can of worms. But we did it. Yeah. We did it. Oh, you, did, you did it. Absolutely. And are things back to normal as as back to normal as, as they'll ever be, maybe? How, how has industry practice sort of changed forever now, would you say, as a result of the pandemic? Well, of course, the trouble is, you see, we haven't got the insurance scheme anymore, unfortunately. So, yes, of course, everyone's far more relaxed about COVID now. It's still out there. But for us in this industry, if somebody gets sick now with COVID, the production isn't insured. So you have to bear that cost with your financier, broadcaster, streamer or whoever. So you still have to have some kind of protocols in place and look after people because as you know people do get covid some people can manage it. it's like having a cold other people you know are wiped out for two weeks so that is still tricky it is still tricky to manage that but otherwise i wouldn't say and well i don't know i think i think people's mental health well-being i think we take a lot more care in looking after people now since the pandemic i think it has changed things slightly i think people are, are more kind of wary because the film industry was all you know we're all together different location every day i think people are just a bit more more yeah wary of what they're where they're going what they're doing how we're looking after them what happens if they get sick that kind of stuff yeah yeah no it's uh it's yeah it's been a challenging uh few years certainly hasn't it for everyone and, and like you say it's still not quite well if, if it's ever going to be over i'm not sure but uh we seem to have found our way through it absolutely and and so mm-hmm. what, are, what are the things you know when you sit down and, and you look at a new project now what are some of those things that you know at the top of your list when it comes to you know your job and, and steering productions through from that very early development to, to seeing them on television? I think it's just getting the right people. You know, it's it's hard work. I think you need good leadership from the top. I think you need, you know, to get a commitment from your crew and artists, um, look after people, you know, explain things. And I think because the industry is so busy at the minute, maybe people in, especially in the crews, they're moving up the ladder a bit too quickly. And so they're not getting the real good grounding of the job before they're in you know moving up to the next stage and I think that then puts pressure on them because it you know it is a difficult job it's difficult jobs but and going back again to my award because it's it's for production I specifically am just so thrilled that production are getting recognized I mean you you know you have camera makeup costume everybody is recognized apart from the poor little production office and that's really because they are out of sight and out of mind fine if everything's going well if it's not going well it's suddenly oh hang on bloody production office what have they been doing and production is is hard graft and you don't get any any well you do get success because you actually get the show done but you just don't get any spotlight put on you and I think more and more people are coming into production but leaving early I think they're finding it such a strain so for me to get this award 
board, because we're all back of camera and no one ever sees us, is extra special, to be honest. And it is for all those people slugging away who nobody ever sees. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, like you say, a lot of people who don't get the rec- recognition. And so it's an absolutely worthy award for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Where is your job or, or where is television heading next, do you think? We're seeing so much change in the industry. And like you say, crews and, and talent generally is is so stretched because there's so much production going on. Where, where do you see things changing or evolving over the next 12 months, next few years? Well, you know, we're pushing again with so much industry-led training and and opening up to younger people to, to, to show younger people that there's, you know, so many different jobs and, and aspirations that you can do in, in this industry. Um, again, you know, from the HOP group, I'm on the Screen Skills High-End TV Council. And I think what we've done in the last 10 years with Screen Skills and High-End Television is um, really second to none. I mean, we poured millions and millions of pounds back into the industry for training. We've opened up so many different tra- different training groups of and getting people back to work and mothers after they've had children. I mean, it's 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 huge what we've managed to do. But I think I just want people to realise what a great career it is and enjoy it. I mean, I know it's hard work, but we are very very lucky to be working in this industry, making magic, going to fantastic places all around the world. Yes, it's hard, but you've got to enjoy it, and that's what I want to. That's what I want to kind of bring back into the industry is is some enjoyment. You know, I look back to our our spooks and hustle days, and I just remember laughing all day. So <laughs> I just I do get a bit I do get a bit worried about everyone looking a bit. Oh gosh, it's all going it's all going a bit tits up, and I don't know if I'm really liking this. And I think I'll leave. You know, have another think about it, and take up training, take your time, work your way up the ladder. There's plenty of opportunities. Um, don't get there too quickly and get stressed out and burnt out and then leave. Alison Barnett speaking with Michael Picard. Now over to Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks to introduce the next interview. While most of us have been doing our best to forget the years of the pandemic, deleting the house party app, burning those sweatpants and never again saying the word unprecedented, there are some who have used it as a learning experience for what might be coming next. James Burstall, Chief Executive of UK and US-based production group Argonon, is one of those people. His book, The Flexible Method, Prepare to Prosper in the Next Global Crisis, was published at the end of March, targeting anyone looking to future-proof their organisation against a similarly cataclysmic event. What qualifies Burstall for this ambitious endeavour? Well, the former journalist says he shepherded Argonon Group, the business he founded in 2011 and consists of nine companies, through the worst of the pandemic, while not only protecting its revenues, but retaining its values by taking crucial steps to put its people first. I spoke to James shortly after the book was published to discuss it as well as Argonon's efforts to become more sustainable and environmentally friendly, working with brands on original programming and the impact of a potential US writer's strike on Unscripted. So James, we're speaking soon after the publication of your book, uh, The Flexible Method, and that's all about providing advice and lessons that you've learned uh, to, to other leaders about how to cope during times of crises. Uh, it's a really fascinating read and obviously yeah, based on lots of your experiences and not just the pandemic, but others. And what's the reaction been like since since the book's been published? Well, we had an absolutely phenomenal launch, actually. We launched on Thursday, the 30th of March, and within 18 hours, it hit the number one bestseller spot on Amazon, which, of course, I was completely thrilled about. And that was just two hours before we had the launch party. So we had a great party. Um I wrote the book to be useful. I, I wanted there to be a toolkit that people can 
uh, turn to when a, a big crisis hits. Because, you know, back, it was only three years ago. If you remember what it felt like three years ago, we were sitting at home in front of our screens, feeling anxious, feeling abandoned, not knowing whether we were going to get sick or whether people were going to die, let alone whether our businesses, wherever we were, could continue. So that was very scary. And at the time, you know, we put a lot of measures in place to try to navigate through. And the first thing that we did was we made sure that we put our people first. Yeah, in, in any crisis, the absolute top priority is get your people to safety because the people are the bedrock. Business isn't about profit and loss. It's about people. So we made sure right at the very beginning that we moved very early. We moved two weeks before Boris Johnson announced the lockdown in the UK. And we moved 1,500 logins off-site and online in 48 hours. And we made sure that we continue as best we possibly could, but working from home. But I was very conscious that people felt frightened. They felt alone. And and we felt quite directionless, I think, at the time. So um, I did set up a, a number of uh, systems, including putting a fantastic team of my uh, strongest uh, allies and colleagues around me who are not yes people. In fact, quite the opposite. They tell me the difficult stuff that often I don't want to hear. Um, and we put measures in place to start communicating really, really well with our people and then to start planning, setting small incremental targets for all of us as a team, first of all, hour by hour, then day by day, then week by week, to make sure that we could keep people safe, try to continue as much production, for example, lots of filming that had been done that was in edits, continue with our editing. And then as things progressed and we started to, to, to plan how we're gonna get people back to work again, because critically we wanted to get our staff and our freelancers back into production, because they're the absolute you know, backbone of our industry. We then started to put uh, measures in place to make sure that was possible. But all of this, of course, at the time we were navigating really using our wits. We had learned a lot from the credit crunch in previous recessions and other crises, 9-11 included. So we had we had a template of what we were, what we were trying to do, but it has never been written down and we hadn't really fine-tuned and honed the process. So I wrote the book because I thought, you know what, next time a big crisis comes along, I want there to be a toolkit that anybody can reach out for and find hopefully useful ideas, thoughts, actions that anybody can put into place. And I feel like there's maybe a kind of collective sense that everyone just wants to forget the pandemic in the past three years. But obviously there are lessons to be learned, you know, both generally and for the TV industry. What are some of the key ones that you've learned? So you mentioned obviously putting people first, but also in terms of the kind of production methods that maybe came in during the pandemic that have since kind of stayed, stayed the course. It's very tempting to to get through a crisis and then think, thank goodness that's over, and then put it behind you and forget about it. And it's quite quite shocking, actually. I mean, you know, even me remembering back three years ago and talking to colleagues and friends now, well, now that the book is out, about you know how just how how horrendous it felt that only three years ago. Of course, the first thing that you must do, and and really all of us in whatever kind of a team we work in, we must prepare. We absolutely have to have. Uh, disaster recovery plans. We have to get our team on board with thinking and planning through possible scenarios. You need to game plan. Um, and also you do need to develop within your organization a flexible mindset. And that's what the independent production sector is so good at in the UK. You know, we work on very tight margins. We're used to thinking on the spot. We're used to pivoting if we need to. We're very agile and we're able to change and 
if one thing doesn't work, try something different. And that's why I wrote the book as well, because I wrote the book for a very broad audience, but the using the entertainment business and the independent production sector in particular as a case study is really valid because if you work for a bigger organization, a giant institution, often you can find that they are more brittle. And you know, being brittle is absolutely of no use to anyone in a crisis. You've got to be flexible and agile. So in terms of measures and things that we put in place, well, certainly after we've got our people to safety, it was very important to lead with calm purpose. Boosterism and pretending that everything's going to be okay is no use to anyone. You have to be honest. And of course, we were seeing some of our people getting getting sick, uh, and that was very painful. Um, But little by little, we started to come up with plans. And the first thing that we decided we we must do is really put together very detailed COVID protocols. So one of our founding directors, Jerry Attawea, worked extremely closely with Amanda Goddard, who's our head of legal and commercial. And they came up with a list of incredibly detailed COVID protocols to make sure that people could, when, when ready, get back into work. And then we shared those findings with across the industry. We worked closely with our channels, obviously the BBC and ITV and others. We had Wurzel Gummidge, the drama coming down the track. We had The Masked Singer coming down the track for ITV. None of these shows initially we thought would be able to go into production at all. But because we were able to give reassurance um, to both those networks, and we also worked very very closely with PAC, Producers Alliance, uh, and we came up with these detailed protocols, and therefore we were able to say, hand on heart, we can get back into production and all our people will be safe. And we were we were right. We were one of the very first dramas out of the gates with Wurzel Dummage, Mackenzie Crook's piece uh, series. And again, with the Mars Singer, we got all of those amazing celebs, Joel Domit, uh, Davina, Rita and everybody on set safely. So it was possible and, and uh, nobody got sick. We never shut down and we got those shows produced. There were companies like yourself that were able to produce kind of remotely. And how does that factor in looking forward in terms of, you know, being more environmentally sustainable with your productions as well? Well, it's interesting, you know, there are definitely opportunities inherent in every crisis. And this is a very positive, optimistic book. I don't want people to think that I'm a doom monger. In fact, quite the opposite. There are amazing opportunities if you're open to them in every crisis. So, for example, we shoot House Hunters International, Leopard USA in the US. That's filming on every continent every day of the week, normally. Uh, We also shoot Mysteries of the Abandoned, like a shop producer out of the UK, again, filming all over the world. But all of that filming was completely impossible back in March 2020 and in the ensuing months. We knew that we couldn't put our people on aeroplanes, we couldn't fly. So what did we do? Well, you know, you've got two options, haven't you? You either kind of crouch down and die, or you think, well, let's think laterally. And of course, that's what we did. That is the essence of the flexible mindset. We went out and we thought, well, look, there are very talented uh, film crews all over the world in a hundred different places. We noticed that the COVID protocol, sorry, COVID lockdowns were being lifted in certain countries at different times, New Zealand and then Sweden and then South Korea. So we moved our filming to those places where the lockdowns were lifting. And then we found crews, many of whom had not produced primetime British or American television before, but they had core skills and they were definitely willing. So we trained them. And I've got a brilliant director in New York, for example, who was, at preg- who was pregnant at the time. There was no way she was going to be able to travel, uh, but she's a very talented director. And she used WhatsApp and she used FaceTime and all sorts of every possible technique that we could think of. Uh, and then uh, after a very short amount of training, we were 
she was directing drone sequences and complex action sequences halfway across the planet, all from her apartment on the East Coast. Now, I did feel some anxiety when I, uh, I knew that the first rough cut was coming in because, of course, we take great pride and all of our shows have to be the highest production values. And I didn't quite know what to expect. I knew we were doing our best. But nonetheless, my heart was going, what's it going to look like? Um, and then I clicked on the link and I just couldn't tell the difference. I mean, it was astonishing what they pulled off. So what has that achieved? It's obviously demonstrated the brilliant director doing her job extremely well under difficult circumstances. It's shared skills now with more than 100 film crews all across the planet. We've now been upskilled to, pr to produce primetime television. And of course, we're not flying all over the world anymore. In fact, we're going to make that absolute part of our DNA moving forwards. We are, we are significantly reducing air miles, which is much, much better for the environment. I'm right in thinking, so there's an internal climate action group now at Argonon. So tell me a bit about that, given that the next global crisis that you, you mentioned in the book's title is potentially going to come from the climate emergency. One of the key lessons in the book is that even in a crisis, you must hold on to your values because your values are who you are. They're your DNA. And it's absolutely critical that your people know that even when things get tough, you do not lose and drop your values. So we had George Floyd right in the middle of COVID. What did we do? Well, of course, we stepped up and we increased our diversity and inclusion work and we put our money where our mouth is and started new internships. That's for diversity and inclusion. We also then thought, well, we've got to start doing more about the climate. Now, our industry is quite far behind other industries. BBC and Sky have been you know, in this space, obviously, for 10 years or more and, and have got some fantastic systems in place. The Albert Consortium is a very major player. We've joined the Albert Consortium. And I decided to reach out in the middle of COVID to all my team and say, listen, we've got to do something about the planet. Uh, we've seen this opportunity that's emerged from House Hunts International and uh, Mistress of the Abandoned. Now let's see if we can get, gather a proper team together and a committee. And I decided to invite one member of the, of the organization to become chair. And this very brilliant series producer from Windfall stepped up because it's good to have a chair from the engine room in the business to really own this space. And we started having monthly meetings. We put the, we put climate and climate decisions onto all of our board board meeting uh, grids. Uh, every time we have a green light meeting, we always consider what are we doing about the environment. We've made it part of our every day, and you you know you do have to do that. You need to get buy-in from all the organisation, and you need to make this the new norm. Do you think the TV industry, given that so much of what happens in TV is behind the scenes and the public doesn't necessarily see or clock the production companies and what they're doing, but do you think there's um just as now consumers are more environmentally aware when they're making their spending choices, do you think consumers, are they pushing for TV to become more environmentally sustainable or is it something that the industry has to kind of take upon itself and know that it might not get that kind of um, kudos? Well, we're not doing it for kudos. We're doing it because we know we have to. And if you go back to the beginning of our conversation, it's all about people. And Argonon, like all companies, is made up of people and people can choose where they work. And people are now increasingly selective. They look at a company and say, well, what do you stand for? Do you stand for a sustainable approach to making programming? Do you stand for diversity and inclusion? Do you basically put your money where your mouth is? Because the truth of the matter is, if you are not authentic and you are just putting this stuff on for show, people will leave you. There are a thousand competitors out there who they will want to go and work for. And we need to make sure that we are being authentic and that we attract people for the right reasons. So, 
in a funny sort of way, of course, the audience in varying degrees will be demanding, but actually we have to be very demanding of ourselves. And we know that people coming into our industry are going to insist that we that we stand up and, and we, we, we mean what we say. Uh, anything less is not good enough. The Nargadon's got a lot of business in the US and that's a really, you know, obviously hugely dynamic TV market. And this year looks set to be dominated potentially by a writer's strike on the scripted side. A lot of your production companies in the US are focused on unscripted. So how are you kind of following that development and what could it potentially mean for the unscripted side of TV in the US? Well, our business is 50-50 UK-US. Um, and we do produce a lot of non-scripted, as you say, both in the US and from the UK into the US. So the non-scripted market is, is obviously vital for us. We do also produce scripted. We produced the Catherine Tate show, uh, the comedy series for Netflix recently, also Mackenzie Crook's Wurzel Gummidge, and we've got some other plans coming down the track. Um, so scripted is very important to us. And I love scripted personally. It's a hugely vibrant industry and um, and it's very much an important part of Argonon. So I'm regretful that um, uh, when things become difficult and I just hope that they can sort out their differences. Um, with regard to non-scripted, I mean, there are always opportunities. You know, at the end of the day, we we saw this back in the time, uh, the previous uh, strike, when scripted did run into some difficulties. Then, of course, channels are still looking for content so they will then come to non-scripted producers such as us and, and, and employ us to produce more non-scripted content. So we're doing what we, we've always done, which is we always you know, have loads of uh, exciting new projects in development. That's our lifeblood, of course. It's our job to be constantly reinventing ourselves. So we're constantly putting new projects in front of buyers. Um, and you know we will go with the ebb and flow. And obviously, I hope that there'll be lots of good uh, commissioning going on throughout the year in, in non-scripts. And I hope that the, the scripted business work out its differences soon as well. I know a lot of unscripted indies in the States are getting squeezed by the fact that a lot of their buyers have more or less kind of disappeared or all come in together under one umbrella organization. Uh, I know you've spoken in the past about brand funding and wanting more of the industry to kind of be welcoming to to brands as a, as a financial um, investor. What what's the latest developments there and what are you doing in that space? It was a difficult year last year, particularly in the US with lots of consolidation, but it's uh, a real screen. There were some important speeches made and there is a sense that a lot of the changes, particularly a lot of the, the headcount changes have now gone through. So hopefully we're starting to see a bit more stability come into the marketplace. And we also saw some big changes such as streamers and elsewhere. Um, but we, we are now seeing more green lights coming through, which is good. Uh, so I'm optimistic. Uh, these things always go uh, in cycles. So I'm never overly concerned because at the end of the day, the audience always want great content. And whether it's long form content on IMAX or a long running drama series or short form content on Snapchat, you know, we're happy and do produce all of the above. Um, so with regards to the future, I think that, you know, the American market and the, and the international market is going to be in a constant state of flux. It's constantly changing. Viewers are always moving. Uh, from one place to another. Um, and something that is interesting to us is that increasingly we're seeing Generation Z being very brand loyal. And we decided, again, in the middle of COVID, that we would diversify into the branded content space. So we invested in a really excellent branded uh, video company called Nemarin. And we've decided to invest in some more team uh, there over there. So we're bringing in a new creative director. And we've got other uh, staff joining shortly. 
they've worked with more than 50 brands in the last year. Um, most recently, they brought out a wonderful film about Federer, uh, supported by Credit Suisse, Roger Federer, the tennis player, obviously. Prior to that, Adidas supported a film called The Wall, uh, which followed the incredible female climbers who went on to win gold and silver at the Olympics. Um, and we have more projects in that space coming down the track. I know that um, at the end of the day, content is king. And we are seeing that there is a change and a shift in the advertising industry away from 30-second spots, moving more towards this branded content space where the essential values of the brand are brought into the values of the programme. And at the end of the day, if it's a fantastic show, then it's going to have quality as a narrative and people are going to want to come to it. You can't be, obviously, pushing brands down people's throats because that's not what they're interested in. But indeed, brands, of course, realise that. Brands don't want to be plastered all over a show. They just want to be inherently part of a really compelling narrative. And that's exciting for me. We do need to look for different ways of funding content. We know that brands have a job to do. They need to speak to their audience. We know that the audience wants great, often very expensive storytelling. So, you know, if we want to make million-dollar-an-hour productions, which we do, amongst other things, we need to make sure that we've got the right funding in place. So co-productions, working with brands, international collaborations, these are all part of the mix moving forward. I wonder how much uh, markets and events like Can Lions are on the radar for TV production companies. Obviously, you used to go into Cannes for MIP TV and MIPCOM. Uh, we, we're going to be there. Arganon and Emery are absolutely going to be there this year. It's very important for us to be talking to all the buyers in the marketplace, including the brands. Interesting. And in early April, uh, so Arganon announced that you'll be appointing a new chief operating officer in the States. So Steve McGovern replacing Shirley Escott, uh, who's returning to the UK. So... In that release, uh, it mentioned, obviously, so new commissions from streamers being on the agenda, but also group acquisitions. So is that the sense that you're looking to expand in the in the US by acquiring more production companies? As a production company, we are always in, on the lookout for new opportunities, and we're constantly looking for new and interesting, often bespoke relationships with executive producers. There are huge shifts going on in the marketplace across the UK and the US, and we're seeing a lot of very talented EPs coming out of one place and looking for perhaps a new way of working. We really like the joint venture model. Again, just towards the end of COVID, we backed Joe Weinstock, who's an absolutely brilliant executive producer who is uh, focused on uh, Americana, as he calls it, so male-skewed middle American content. And, you know, America's made up currently of two halves, isn't it? And we're obviously very strong on the two coasts, but we hadn't up until this point had a base in the middle of the United States. So we backed Joe Weinstock in Oklahoma. And he's got some really exciting male-skewed programming and formats coming down the track. I hope that there will be others uh, coming along in, in a similar vein. We are looking at some potential acquisition targets as well. And one of the reasons for bringing Steve McGovern in, based in Los, in Los Angeles, is to really big up our, uh, our West Coast hub. We've got Leopard USA, headed up by Lindsay Schwartz, who's doing great business there, which is in the more female-skewed formatting space. Combining that with Joe Weinstock and his male formatting space, and we will look for other complementary businesses in due course. We are obviously on, having ongoing, ongoing discussions. James Burstall speaking with Nico Franks. 
Nico's off to Cannes in France for MIP TV next week, along with Drama Quarterly editor Michael Pickard, and the pair sat down with C21 News editor Clive Whittingham and Kids editor Carolina Kaminska to look ahead to the event and discuss some of the shows and key themes that will shape the 60th anniversary of the Confab. Welcome everybody, Clive, Carolina, Mike, great to have you on the show today, thanks for joining us. So TV execs will soon be on their way to Cannes for MIP TV. It's the 60th edition of the market and one the organisers have been touting as being the biggest in years, which I suppose isn't that hard when uh, the 2020 and 2021 editions were all online. But nevertheless, you know, there have been some interesting additions to the three-day event and there'll be thousands of people attending. So it's always one that we attend and it should be uh, an interesting one and obviously even more interesting given what's going on in France at the moment and Carolina and Mike you were both at Series Mania in Lille not so long ago. How did the recent civil unrest there affect the event? Um, well I think the short answer is it probably didn't affect the event too much but certainly the logistics as the week wore on people were very vocal about their concern perhaps that they might not be able to make it home on the Thursday which was the end of the event and therefore they were faced with the opportunity or the, or the decision to move their plans back a day to the Friday or leave a day early. And, and certainly walking around the, the Lille Grand Forum, uh, the Grand Palais in Lille on, on Thursday, it was noticeable, uh, noticeably much quieter than it had been the previous two days, which I have to say were incredibly busy. If you found a seat, you were, you'd won the lottery because... Um, it, it was a really busy event and uh, so it was a shame that people did feel the need to, to leave. I don't know the numbers, but, but certainly it was a lot quieter around the Palais on the Thursday. And Carolina, did you get caught up in any of the protests? I did not, um, but, I, but I, I saw the aftermath uh, walking through the streets in the evening with the bins that had been set on fire. Um, and yeah, from, from what I understand, there were protesters marching through the streets during the day and riot police retaliating with, with tear gas. I think as well, um, Mike said, you know, disruption to the event was, the event itself was minimal, but I think there was a, an incident where protesters tried to storm the red carpet at, at one of the festival's events and uh, police had to get involved with that. And obviously we're speaking ahead of uh, MIP TV, so we don't know exactly what the situation will be in France that week. And obviously Cannes is a, a smaller city than Lille, so perhaps there won't be as many demonstrations um, there, if any. But I suppose international delegates will be wondering how they might be affected ahead of their journeys to France. You know, you'll have people coming from a long, long way. So I suppose the thing to say is, you know, we don't have the latest, but there's always the potential for strikes to cause disruption. So I suppose check your airline or train line for travel updates. Uh, Mike, you and I will be doing that because we're heading there. What's on your agenda? Well, um, as it has been customary over the last uh, five or six years, uh, springtime in Cannes is, is Cannes series for me as, as the editor of Drama Quarterly. That's uh, the event I look to uh, increasingly now in Cannes in, in the springtime. MIP TV, noticeably, the drama remit has, has sort of shrunken you know, considerably over the last few years. Um, I guess particularly this year, uh, looking at the agenda, it's mostly screenings. A lot of those are cross-promoted can series screenings as well so um, you know you've got the share of can series premieres you've got the the MIP market premieres um, and perhaps an interesting one for buyers is that for the last few years they've had a MIP drama 
showcase on, on the Sunday before the, the event kicks off where uh, 10 up and coming new series have been showcased in sort of 15 minute first look kind of clips and and then there's been a, an award given to the, to the, the, the best judged uh, <laughs> new selection. Um, which is, you know, I think anecdotally it's been quite popular for the participants as well as the people who've enjoyed seeing some of the new things coming off the pipeline. Um, you know, MIP TV remains a, a more of a sales market perhaps than uh, some of the other markets where development is more of a focus. Um, so it's noticeable that this year that MIP drama showcase is now very much a, a MIP drama colon can series showcase so buyers get the chance to see previews of the shows that will be premiering anyway later in the week so it'd be interesting to see if there's any uh, sort of reaction from buyers about perhaps just not being able to see the range of drama that they might have done in previous years um, so that's on the MIP side but certainly on can series I think it's the sixth year if I'm correct now um, certainly it's it's you know the pink carpet dominates the the quasette for, for people who who have been there in previous years um, I'm sure this year will be no different. Um, it's going to be an interesting one. There's quite a good selection of shows in the official selection, uh, which is the main competition. There are shows from South Korea, Canada, Israel has a couple, um, a couple of standouts to to watch that I've picked. Um, there's a Norwegian show called Powerplay uh, for NRK, which is uh, it's been compared to Veep, a Norwegian Veep, in in terms of it's about the rise of the first the country's first female PM Prime Minister in 1981. Um, so that's one to look forward to, I think. Uh, Denmark's DR has a show called Prisoner, which is uh, the story of four prison guards and, and the various conflicts they face. Noticeably, uh, it stars uh, Sophie Gravel from The Killing. So I think that'll be one to watch as well and will be one that buyers uh, will, I'm sure, look up. Um, and another one, a, a local one, France's uh, Tappy, which is actually a Netflix's first series in competition, first French series in competition, I should say. They've had series there in the past, but this is their first uh, French show, and it's a biopic, uh, perhaps not a, a, a name uh, well-known to people outside of France. It's a biopic of uh, Bernard Tappy, who uh, was, uh, by all intents and purposes, uh, a tycoon in France, and uh, as I've read about him, uh, a, a sometimes singer and actor, as well as a businessman and a politician. So um, I've seen that one sort of tipped uh, in a few places and, and certainly that thing I think that'll be a, a one to watch in terms of the French fair um, in terms of other other sort of out of competition stuff uh, the event kicks off on Friday with uh, Apple TV's Silo which is a show that's been in, in sort of in the works for a little while it stars Rebecca Ferguson um, and I think that'll be uh, obviously with Apple TV but backing it I think that's going to be one to watch as well um, and other guests, there are going to be master classes from Sarah Michelle Geller, who is in town for um, to receive the Icon Award, and, and she'll be giving a master class, as well as Joey Solomon, the creator of Transparent, uh, will also be talking about that show, and, and um, you know during another master class. So I think there's there's lots of various uh, different bits to Can Series these days, but that's the main thing. I think it's also maybe Clive will, will talk about this later, or but we'll follow up. But uh, it's also noticeable that they've got a, a documentary kind of elements of the festival as well this year so that will be one to watch as, as no doubt factual and sort of unscripted becomes a, a bigger talking point about the industry as, as sort of different economic uh, situations collide over the next 12 months. Yeah we'll come on to that in a moment and some other changes I think that, that people will see and can uh, I think there's been a, an attempt to rebrand the bunker as Le Boulevard so the adult content distributors are out and more networking areas are in 
and the Grand has reopened, but it's now called the Mondrian. Um, and after a few, I'm sure people are going to be mixing it up with the Mandalorian. But uh, Clive, you'll be holding the fort here in London. And yes, so Mike there mentioned the documentary element that's been added to uh, MIP TV. So why do you think that has been done? Um, they've basically folded MIP Doc and um, and the, the formats um, strand that they had into the main week. Uh, used to be a, there used to be a separate MIP Doc in a, in a sort of separate venue, a separate hotel on the weekend leading in. Um, and I think that had basically had its day as an event. Um, the screenings there are very popular, like you could go in there and there'd be banks of monitors and just buyers sitting there all day just screening stuff. But the conference programme um, was increasingly not particularly well attended. Um, it just felt a bit strange to be spending the money and having it as a separate thing at the weekend, really. So it's no surprise to see it folded in coming coming out the back of the um, out the back of the pandemic. Um, it's obviously like a really interesting time for Factual at the moment because the feature that uh, the main feature in the Factual section of uh, your magazine that you're taking um, to Cannes we've called it the perfect storm in that the factual producers, particularly the US factual producers, had had to, were already dealing with ridiculously pared back profit margins to the point where, and rising development costs to the point where, unless you got a second season or multiple episodes of your show, it, it didn't really pay to, uh, to do the show at all. You would basically always make a loss on your first season. So they were already having that. You then had the pandemic, obviously, with all the production shutdown that came with that and obviously coming back and trying to produce in lockdown with all the extra quarantines and hotels and things like that, you know, 30% more budget on your show. You then, in addition to all of that, which obviously the other producers have had to deal with as well in other genres, you've then had all of your main factual buyers, particularly in the US, get involved in these massive mega mergers, like all the, all the Turner cable nets in the US, all of the scripts cable nets, all of the discovery cable nets and HBO are all part of the same company now and basically all using the same tariff so it's just completely killed competition where you could play networks off against each other it's basically that's the tariff for your show now and obviously not going to be a high tariff in that situation so they've had all of this going on all at once the factual producers particularly the US ones but now looking ahead and starting potentially at MIP TV, there's all this talk about a writer's strike where scripted and drama may go on hiatus. You know, what's going to fill those schedules? Last time this happened in a big way, that was the birth of reality television. It was quick, it was cheap to make, you could make loads of it in great volume at low cost. You know, reality television didn't really exist before that and then just completely exploded because of the last writer's strike. So there's now potentially coming off this horrible sort of three or four years for factual producers, this amazing opportunity. Um, so I guess we're going to events like MIP TV looking at what form that might take. And it's interesting because I think it was this time last year at MIP TV that uh, Johannes Larcher, uh, then of HBO Max Europe, during his keynote, talked about all the European originals that HBO Max was going to be making by the end of uh, 2023. Um, 21 of which now are instead going to be heading to Sky Showtime as HBO Max uh, kind of did a complete U-turn on that strategy uh, and Larcher has since you know, lost his job and lots of other people at streamers and at those big media companies have as well and it kind of sums up how uh, turbulent the past 12 months have been 
before we talk about fast, Carolina, how, what in terms of the kids offer, uh, what's going to be going on there? So this year, MIP TV is hosting a Future of Kids TV Summit on the Tuesday, um, which comprises an afternoon of keynotes and panel discussions looking into the future of children's TV. Um, there's going to be a lot of research and insights, mostly, I think, relating to things like kids' content habits um, and also panels of producers about how to engage kids and make successful IP. And there's a session as well on adapting business models for social media. So basically, it's all about what the future holds for children's TV as their viewing habits change, what they want to watch, how they want to consume it, um, and what those working in the kids' business need to do to, in response to that. Interesting. And so there's also going to be a track all focused on free ad-supported streaming uh, TV, so FAST, uh, which also reflects the tough economic environment we're in. And so far, originals from those FAST players have been few and far between. In our kind of talks with buyers and, and what we've been hearing from them, how much are we hearing uh, from them in terms of their commissioning and acquisitions uh, budgets? How, how much are they being squeezed by what we're going through at the moment? So I published a, a piece um, in the Formats Weekly this week from Natalie Boot at Insight TV. Obviously, Insight have been quite a nimble company in Europe, uh, broadcasting to a young audience on various uh, strands and, and also with a linear channel as well. So they get, they're often quite an interesting company to talk to about the direction of travel. And she's obviously very enthusiastic about the opportunities presented by Fast. But as far as actually paying for originals, you know, and you see Blue Ant Media are another one that have gone into Fast in a big way and are starting to talk about originals on their Fast channel. But at the moment, the viewership doesn't match the hype and the amount that we're talking about. Who is actually watching these Fast channels in any sort of great volume? And without that, how does an original strategy, an expensive original for that, you know, pay for itself? At the moment, the Fast channel's main strategy seems to be we'll have a... Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares fast channel and just stick all of Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares on there on a loop for people that just want to watch that but actually paying to reboot Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares just for a fast channel I don't see at the moment the the economics of that do they add up if with the viewership that fast's got it's like it's well hyped and everyone's looking at it because of the economic situation as a, like a potentially great thing but at the moment what do we think the the average viewership for a fast channel is I, like and does that compute with an original strategy I think that's what a lot of companies are wrestling with at the minute yeah it feels more like a, a new well a not so new way of watching in the sense that it is very you know it has a structure like a linear schedule and I remember not so long ago I saw on my um, telly when I put on the smart TV that it was saying you know it was a fast channel but it said at nine o'clock we've got this film playing so it's recreating that kind of um, you know, very traditional, old school way of watching, but in a, in a just a slightly new mode of delivery, I suppose. And that isn't gonna be what's it's a funding good place originals. to dump your IP, right? If you're a, particularly if you're a distributor, like some of these distributors after these mega mergers at Banerjee or All Three or places like that, you've got these huge catalogues of shows, like thousands and thousands of hours sitting there. So you may as well just group them together and whack them on a fast channel. I understand that business model, but I don't think I at the moment see the business model for going out and spending like even like really low-end factual budget of sort of say sixty thousand pounds an hour or something 
I'm not even sure I see that at the minute. So that would be an interesting thing to watch this year, whether someone can make the economics of that work. I mean, it's really, it's really just TV online, isn't it? Unless I'm missing something, you know, catastrophic, which would be, you know, detrimental to my career probably. But, um, you know, it's, you know, I did a presentation at um, Series Mania recently where one of the trends I identified was fast and, and its explosion. But on the other side, I think it was Gary Wolf from All3 Media International told us earlier in the year that how, how fast is fast TV growing? And, and, you know, we're just going to end up in this, sort of uh, cable situation where there's just too many channels, no one's watching, is it profitable? And and that's why I say it's just TV because, um, you know, maybe in the future we're going to turn off the, the, you know, the, what's the word, the analog signal and then, you know, ITV will just be online and that'll be a fast channel, but it's it's what you've always been watching. It's just a different way of delivery perhaps. So that's where I perhaps see it going. But uh, yeah, I think Clive's right at the moment. It's, it's, it's a very niche and... and an IP dump, you know, probably more than anything else at the moment. And most importantly, free. Well, yeah. And, and I've been quite impressed with, you know, Avoid. I've not watched much fast, but Avoid in particular, I've been quite impressed with how relatively few adverts there are actually in an hour. It's, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, all adverts are a bit scary these days. But, um, you know, I've been binge watching The West Wing again and, you know, one advert every 20 minutes, it's, you don't even notice it half the time. So, um, yeah, maybe it's the future adverts. And I often think with the kids industry is often kind of the canary in the coal mine and trends we see there end up appearing a year or two years later down in other areas of TV. So how is fast in kids content at the moment? It's, it's, I think it's quite a big deal at the moment. Um, it, it does seem to be that, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of kids brands and that's kind of, you know, when a new TV show comes out with a lot of the the people behind them, the aim is to turn it into a big brand with, you know, L&M opportunities, consumer products and stuff. And so, you know, if they can make them into these big brands, then then there's definitely an opportunity to have a channel just dedicated to that brand, um, just playing episode after episode of that show. So yeah, it lends itself, like Clive was saying, to these already, you know, big established IP um, that already exist. Um, there's definitely a, a place for that and, and fans of that will, will go there to, to watch more of it. So in the kids space, it's everybody's really enthused by it. And I think a lot of companies are trying to kind of expand into that area. So we just put the finishing touches to the spring issue of the magazine, which will be available at MIP TV and to read online this week. It's all a bit of a blur for me, but Carolina and Clive, you both wrote great pieces on really interesting subjects. Clive, you mentioned uh, one earlier. Um, Carolina, you were writing about artificial intelligence in kids' TV. So that's an area that that really polarised producers. Yeah, it's quite a a hot topic. Um, So the feature that I wrote was about the use of AI in animation, which is, is pretty controversial, but it's piquing a lot of interest. So most children's producers that I spoke to are, are saying that they're keeping an eye on it. They might not be experimenting with it. A lot of them have, have already experimented with things like chat GPT to see if they can get a script. But the general consensus seems to be that it's not really that good. It doesn't really, it, it, yes, it can write a script, but it doesn't necessarily write a script that you'd want to watch. And, and, and most people seem to be thinking that it shouldn't really be used for the creative side of things, so the writing, um, the actual drawing, 
but it would it, it could be quite useful as a tool for technical side of things speeding up certain processes or things like dubbing um, translation that kind of thing so yeah mo most people that I've spoken to you know don't see it as a replacement for human creativity it doesn't have feelings or emotions or anything like that you 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 know you need humans for that um, and for for children in particular as well the idea that a computer could dictate or create what they watch is is quite horrifying really but actually it's, it's quite interesting because they're the opinion is really mixed and some people are really excited by it, some people think it's a horrible idea. Um, Genius Brands is using AI in some of its content um, and in addition to using it for as a tool for technical things, it, it, it has been using it for research as well and for writing. But then there is this fear that it could end up going too far and killing human jobs. Um, it was Netflix faced some backlash recently for a short uh, film that it made. Uh, the Dog and the Boy it was called and it used AI generated art for the backgrounds um, and critics of that accused it of using AI in order to avoid paying human artists and it also sparked legal concerns because the thing with AI is it can only use information that it's been fed so you know it can't really make original work um, so then pl plagiarism is quite a big issue and then also um, copyright issues how do you copyright, copyright something that's been made by a computer and not an actual human being. I suppose there are parts of TV that are quite formulaic and so a computer could easily kind of recreate a lot of some parts of TV, maybe certain daytime TV shows, certain factual kind of shows, you know, just providing narration um, based on, on certain ideas. Clive, what are you hearing from your factual contacts about their use of AI? That we're all going to lose our jobs right <laughs> well could a but could a could a, a computer get a scoop you know there are certain parts of the job that that can't be recreated we hope and i suppose you hope <laughs> if it was starting to produce scoops that'd be great for me yeah that's true <laughs> but would it is that maybe what's going to happen in terms of tv there will maybe be this genre that emerges of ai created tv it's kind of like that wallpaper tv that some people talk about stuff that's just on in the background and obviously people don't want kids content to resemble that because you know it, it infers that it's just pretty mindless stuff mm. but there is a lot of tv there that is, is like that. there is pretty mindless stuff yeah so i mean this could be your answer to your earlier question about how you make fast originals affordable because you could just churn out you know i see youtube videos now that have got that mechanical voiceover over that's obviously not a person you can just produce a voiceover on a cheap youtube video and that's what people expect from youtube so maybe that's what, maybe that will answer our earlier question about fast it will just be like ai sort of cooking travel programs i mean i was around my mate's house last weekend and they had um a fast channel on in the background just as background tv and it was like a culinary tour of thailand or somewhere there was no person on screen and it was sort of just a camera traveling around restaurants and whatever and showing you the food with uh, subtitles at the bottom and the subtitles were being read by that mechanical background and he said he has that on all the time just in the background i was like you're insane but um you know people are already watching that uh the whole thing frightens me to be honest <laughs> it's kind of you know what, at what point does it come to kill us I think if, if it is going to work anywhere, then it's infactual, to be honest, because it can it can just regurgitate all this information that it's been given. And if we're talking about not using it for creative stuff, 
then that kind of there was gen- there was genuinely a story in the Times at the weekend from I've forgotten the name of the guy which I should have looked up before I came on here sorry but he did say you need to stop this now like don't develop it anymore the more intelligent and clever and it will find a way to exterminate human life if you keep developing this like AI where are we now AI three or something if you take it to four five six like you're gonna have a big problem with it so I'm very much in favour of just like just leave it alone. Calling it quits. Yeah, call it quits. Pull the plug, turn it off. <laughs> How about prestige drama, Mike, with all the human emotions, the plot twists and turns, the unexpected surprises? Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's, yeah, it's a very, you know, as Caroline was saying about, you know, just the script writing, it's, it's, um, it's easy to see how writers on, on shows will just fall by the wayside as, as people plug in, you know, genre and, and, you know, character types and things and, you know, click create scripts and it's, um, it's certainly a, an interesting talking point. I mean, Lisa Joy, if go back to Series Mania again, sorry, TV, but um, Lisa Joy was, um, you know, people will know her from her work on, on Westworld and, and as an EP on the peripheral. And I spoke to her before she went to Series Mania where she was the head of the jury of the, the festival competition. And I mean, you know, anyone who knows, no one knows sci-fi better than her at the moment probably. And, and she was quite open and she said this in her keynote as well, that it's it's not so much fiction anymore it's it's just sigh there's no fi and um you know that's that's a pretty scary place and and then you think well where are where are human minds going to take their ideas next and and how soon will that not be fi either and um yeah i mean you know we we knew about skynet a long time ago and um you know we did nothing to stop it there we go and it is factoring into the negotiations as part of the potential writer's strike i believe and obviously that's a moving target so we don't know the exact latest there but obviously there are calls for it to be elements around ai to be factored into the new contracts yeah well i think the you know the the writer's strike i mean you know I, i wouldn't want to bring a strike on but you know lots of people i've spoken to believe it's kind of inevitable because the the landscape for writers now is so mixed and varied it just doesn't quite fit into the traditional boxes that writers in the US have been working to and, and their contracts have therefore um, you know you know stipulated in terms of payments and it's, it's such a fluid system at the moment and you know I'm sure there will be a certain element of future proofing you know future contracts so you know we're not talking about this again in three years where AI is is writing things or, or writing you know background stuff you know or even any part of a, a TV drama or, or TV show at all really um, so yeah so it's a very fluid situation and I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how how it does come out because obviously the unions play a very different role in the US than they might do in Europe where you know things like mini writers rooms and, and writers are brought in for sort of backgrounding and, and breaking story uh, early in development and then sort of left let go to allow the main writer to sort of write the actual series i know that's sort of something they're kind of rallying against a bit in the us so it's it's very interesting to watch from this side of the pond and, and see how how it's all gonna to sort of play out really because it's um there's a lot of <laughs> variables that come into play now in the industry just in terms of the way shows are structured and, and the number of episodes and things we're not you know talking about 22 episodes a season for eight years anymore uh, with staffs of 15 writers so um yeah there's, there's all to play for and i think it's it's not going to be an easy situation and ai might just complicate matters further i think and when it happened 15 years ago obviously all those relationships that may they may have now the u.s players with international 
writers are there now. So that could be another element. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly something that we're not quite sure our studio is now going to go to US showrunners or UK showrunners, European showrunners and, and ask them to, to write shows. I mean, it's a bit like crossing the, the Atlantic picket line or something, isn't it? So um, I can't imagine there'll be too many writers who are, will be happy to go and write US shows while they have to drive through the, the, the you know the protests outside Warner Brothers or wherever it might be. But it doesn't it doesn't wouldn't have to be a US show. That's Jordan did a good story on this a couple of weeks ago where he he basically said that they're looking to sort of future proof them Canada and Europe because it doesn't have to be a US show anymore, does it? We've evolved from two thousand seven eight. Like you say, it's not twenty three episodes in a US hospital anymore or police. You know, it's not f- that formulaic even the American audience is open now to to foreign drama, so they wouldn't actually have to do the scab thing and cross the picket line. You, they could just commission a eight-part British series now and people will watch it. It's way, This strike's going to be way more complicated than last time. And I'm sure it's going to be uh, on everyone's minds at MIP TV. So thanks very much for your time, everyone. I'm off to print my badge. Mike, I recommend you do too. And... <laughs> I wish everyone, yeah, safe uh, journeys to MIP TV, those who are going. Thanks a lot. Nico Franks, Michael Pickard, Clive Whittingham and Carolina Kaminska. There'll be plenty more from the team in Cannes throughout next week, so be sure to tune in to our C21 FM internet radio station and stay up to date with all the latest news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. The podcast will be back next Friday. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 